The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Hello. When one hits roadblocks in life, our response to them shows us who we really are. The greater the challenge, the more we reveal of ourselves. But how much do we show when the challenge is too great? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and pineapple cheesecake, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's symposium discusses the 2003 Spanish-Canadian drama My Life Without Me written for the screen and directed by Isabel Cochette, and starring Sarah Polly, Mark Ruffalo, Scott Speedman, and Debbie Harry. My guest is Gary Roger, and you join us in an overgrown Vancouver suburb. Hello, Gary. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, this is your first time on Cinema Limbo. It's always nice to have a bit of new blood. Um, Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, it's nice to have someone who is... Uh, of uh, a, a sort of a mature, wide-ranging <laughs> um, cultural uh, education, someone who appreciates uh, both more rarefied and more popular culture. Um, so can I just check? Have you have you got the right person on here? The mature bit, yeah, I agree with. But this this business about being cultured, this yeah. Um, if if my co-host on the sitcom club and Jaffa Kicks for Proust Tilt was with me just now, he'd be not himself laughing at this because I I am very much the this the self obsessed self obsessed. Um, I'll t- try that again. The self confessed philistine of the the duo. He's the one that knows all about. Abel Gons or her, however the hell it is that you pronounce, you know, all the, that's, he that's, all those silent that's films, correct. What have you. Yeah, well, well, yeah. I only know that from Man About the House, so yeah. But um, no, my my shelves here are, yeah. There's a lot of popular culture of a certain age. There's a lot of broad comedy. I'm very much into. Uh, the Sky Q box is is full of on the buses recordings. Um, my, my my hope actually was today that we were going to really go through the, the trilogy of the on the buses film series and and you know really dissect the, the characterization and the plot development and so on. But well, um, yeah. the the remit of the podcast is films that um, deserve reevaluation. But I think the on on the buses movies are very accurately assessed by culture in general. I think people are fully aware of how good those films are. <laughs> well. That, that's it's interesting you say that because uh, yes, I agree. Uh, wasn't Mutiny on the Bus's Hammer's highest grossing ever film? I couldn't swear to that. I've I've heard that was it Holiday on the Buses? No, I've I've heard this business about how supposedly on the buses uh, outdrew Diamonds of Forever, and I'm not even sure if that's true or not, or if that's necessarily uh, an urban myth. But certainly, yeah, they played to very good audiences when they came out because they uh, would quite often play in places like uh, cinemas adjacent to holiday camps when it was pissing down with rain. Ah, very um, clever. So yeah, yeah, very good, very good marketing strategy, and surprisingly popular considering that 
a lot of the the first film was effectively sort of cannibalizing bits and pieces from the TV shows. But at that time, I suspect that you could probably get away with that kind of thing a bit more because you'd get a certain number of repeats uh, within a, you know, a year or two of a program having gone out. But it's not like today where you know everybody can... Yeah, I mean, if, if you did that with Only Fools and Horses, for example, everybody knows every single scene, every line. So if, if you then restaged them all, then people would just be able to point and say, oh, that's from that episode, that episode, that episode, so on, so on, so on. But um, yeah, no, uh, they, they are what they are. And um, yeah, let's hope, fingers crossed again for maybe the 20th year running ITV3, all three on the buses, films and carry on camping on Christmas Day. There you go, stuff your lockdown. That's what I'm doing. Well, I, I sense that you are... Uh, trying to stall <laughs> now okay I'm going to be now there's, there's, there's something I want to say right at the outset here okay uh, and that is well there's actually there's, there's two things there's two things I'm going to say one is that uh, Jeremy gave me this film and full disclosure I then tried to back out of it he sends me this film I look at the synopsis on IMDB I thought hell's bloody bells it looks like the best way I can describe it without giving too many spoilers. Don't worry about spoilers. Oh, no, no. I, I mean, yeah, because I'm, what I mean is as in spoilers for the podcast. Itself, oh, I see. Because, you know, you want people hooked. And you want them, you know, there for the duration. Right. You know, not at this time of year, but at any other time of year apart from Christmas, you know those films that are on Channel 5 at half past three on a weekday afternoon? It's one of those. Oh, right? now come on. No. Oh, yes. No, that, that, that's the best way that I can describe this. So I looked at this plot description on IMDB and I thought oh my god uh, and I thought there's got to be there must have been some sort of terrible mix up in, in, in admin at the Cinema Limbo HQ because this clearly wasn't intended for me so I said yeah can we have something a bit more cheerful and you know fair play to you you held your ground and said no come on you know the podcast is about you know getting people to see stuff that you know, they're not used to and what have you so I said okay fair enough yeah I'll, I'll give it a blast so when you listen to me rant about this for the next hour or so, all I'll ask is, um, I'm saying this to the listeners, generally, do not judge me too harshly on this. I am critiquing the film. I am not critiquing the subject matter. I'm not making light of the subject matter. Okay, oh, I, I, don't think, just, I don't think anyone would think that. Yeah, no, I just, I just want to emphasize that because there's going to be points in this discussion where I, 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 I may be rather ill-disposed towards our, our principal character who presumably were supposed to be in sympathy with throughout the entirety of the film uh the second thing i was going to say is that that this is this is not at all my place to do this but i feel that it's it's in in the in the interests of justice i think it's got to be done jeremy i think that i have to make a very serious charge here i've got to suggest that you are in fact the manager of the Britannia Video Club in 1989. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Curses, okay? readers, he's found me out. Right. Now, older I would have listeners... got away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling, Gary. <laughs> right. Older listeners know what I'm talking about. Younger listeners have no idea. Okay. I, I'm an older listener and I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, right. Now, remember, right, late 80s, early 90s, back in the TV times... You get adverts for Britannia and, of course, other video clubs were available. And you would sign up and they would say you'll get like your first two or three VHS cassettes free to own, not to rent, to, to buy. And they're yours to keep forever and ever. So naturally, 
you know, we as a family sent off, signed up for Britannia Video Club, and I think we probably got three Carry On films as, as, as part of the, the first set, or maybe one of the Prisoner releases or something like that. I'm not sure. There would have been dis- there would have been conversations within the household about what we were going to select. Now, here's here's the trick about this. Here's a catch, because there always is one of these things. Once you'd signed up to the Britannia Video Club, you were then obliged to buy at least one videotape every month at the regular price. And if you were to exercise your judgment and say, ah, sorry, Britannia, but there's nothing in this month's catalogue that really appeals, I think I'll pass. Maybe I'll get two next month. We'll see. No, that wasn't an option. What they would do is they would send you what they called the editor's choice so they were basically warning you on page three of the booklet that came out, if you do not choose your own videotape this month, you're getting this. The decision will be taken for you. Exactly. The one that I remember as getting was Fatal Attraction, which really did not appeal in the, the household. Uh, but once you'd got it, if you didn't pick your, your film, then you were lumbered with it. And I always just sort of presumed that their choice, their what they call their editor's choice, or director's choice, or whatever the hell it was said. I always just presumed that their buyer had made some sort of mistake, maybe added an extra zero to the quantity, and they'd end up with a shitload of them in the warehouse, and this was the only way that they're going to be able to shift them. And that's what I'm thinking has happened with this film. I'm thinking, you've had this film on this list of, like, you know, films to do for, like, weeks or months or whatever, and it's always just been sitting there, and... Ah, you know, I failed to specify that I really would have enjoyed Carry On Dick, and therefore I've ended up with this thing called My Life Without Me. Oh, I feel better for that now. So, how do you plead, Jeremy? Um, ignorance? <laughs> um, well, uh, I do have a master list of films I want to cover on the podcast, and I've had been maintaining that for over five years. And I'm fairly sure this film has been on that list since the start. <laughs> oh, I, and I, the I reason completely is, believe that. I yeah. saw it when it came out um, in the autumn of 2003, and I was really impressed by it. I really liked it. But then I never heard anything else about it. Right. And I hadn't seen it since then. I thought, right, now is a good time to cover it on the podcast. Hmm. Um, got hold of the DVD, I rewatched it, and I loved it again. And... I thought, as with the previous episode on Japanese story, I don't want to... Because this is tra- this is a kind of thing that might be traditionally a women's film. And I thought, well, I don't want to get a female guest to cover this, because that's kind of patronising. Oh, I have to get a female guest to watch a women's film. If I get a female guest, I'm going to make her watch Highlander. Um, I thought, no. As with Japanese story, which I watched with Chris, I'll get a male guest for this, because it's maybe something a bit more outside their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up with you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Muttley. Um, it's um, it's a film with an unusual heritage. It's based on a short story called "Pretending the Bed Is a Raft" by Nancy Kincaid, who wrote a lot of short stories and novels about life in the Southern states of the U.S. Uh, among working class people. But the film is actually a Canadian-Spanish co-production. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I noticed um, Antenna Free is one of the the companies, and when I've been previously fiddling with different internet protocol streaming television services, I've noticed them sitting alongside TVE in the Spanish EPG mm. section. It's directed by Isabel Cochette, 
who is a um, filmmaker from Barcelona, and it's produced by Pedro Amoldovar's usual production company. But it was filmed in uh, Vancouver and the surrounding area and stars Sarah Polly, Mark Ruffalo, Scott Speedman and uh, Debbie Harry. Um, so none of those names or heritages uh, in any way overturned your bottomless... <laughs> I, uh, I, well, I, I, knew, I knew obviously Debbie had it because that, that was one of the first things I actually, because I was making notes. Uh, so I'd actually written here, is that Blondie? And then I thought, it is Blondie. Okay, well, yeah. yeah she's, that's, she's, been, that's, she's been in a few things as an actor. Yeah, okay. Well, there we go. Mark, so, Ru- Mark Ruffalo, is, you know, he's the Incredible Hulk. He's an Oscar nominee. Now, yeah, I, I really wasn't overly familiar with Debbie Haddy's film career. And the guy who you've just mentioned there, I've already forgotten his name. because Scott Speedman, I, yeah. He was in the, uh, the Underworld <laughs> films, the kind of vampire werewolf action movies. And he's right. kind of like a... Um, like you know, there's there's this actor Army Hammer. Have you heard of him? No. He's very sort of good-looking, handsome American type, and I thought, oh yeah, I know what direction his career is going in. He's just going to make boring films where he's handsome. But he's actually gone off and done European films, more artistic films. So he's kind of subverting the, you know, the the A-list, good-looking Hollywood star type um, molds that he might fit into. I- Whereas first, that's when, that's exactly what Scott Speedman hasn't done. Well, when that's the song, kind of career I was expecting him to do, but he didn't. He just carried on making uninteresting films. Apart from this, when I saw him at a distance at first, I thought, "Is that Tim from the American Office?" And then oh, I realized John that it, yeah, but then I realized that it wasn't. Who, like Sarah Polly, is also an actor turned filmmaker. No, the funny thing is, I kept on seeing this because I've got one of those Amazon Fire TV devices. And last year, they kept on plugging this thing, Jack Ryan. And I never usually pay a lot of attention to what's at the top of the screen. They're always promoting whatever it is they're going to promote. But eventually, I sort of thought, is that Tim from the American office in some sort of Bruce Willis-type role? And apparently it is. So fill me in, Jack Ryan. What, what's the deal? How, how did Tim from the American office suddenly become Bruce Willis? Um, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Um He's done some other stuff since The Office. He's not called Tim in The American Office, by the way. <laughs> okay, right, yeah, of course, no, the, the American Office is not my, my speciality. Um, I've, I've, I've seen bits and pieces, but I've never but, really... But uh, he, he's, he's parlayed his success in The Office into becoming a filmmaker. Right. Um, he directed A Quiet Place, very highly acclaimed um, sort of semi-horror family drama, mm-hmm. um, uh, which he co-wrote, directed and starred and was a big hit and he's made a sequel to that. So he's kind of balanced between uh, being a filmmaker and being a major actor and I, I have a suspicion that the Jack Ryan role was something that he did for his career rather than because he felt some pressing emotional need to run around in foreign countries with a beard <laughs> because um, the Jack Ryan books aren't great traditionally. Mm. I've always just got a, a sneaking suspicion, and this is this is probably really unfair, but I'm not, I'm not a cinephile, so I, I really don't follow cinema uh, to any sort of you know close okay. uh, extent. But I always get this the sort of suspicion that see when you you see films called um, Netflix original or Amazon Prime original or something like that, 
It might be that 2020 is the year in which this perception changes, given everything that we've gone through in the last 12 months. But prior to this year, I always sort of got the impression that that was the modern equivalent of straight-to-video. Now, is that is that unfair? Because I, think, I was, I, I think that is unfair. I mean, I don't have I don't have an Amazon Prime subscription. I do have a Netflix subscription, and the first original film Netflix released was. Um, Oh, I've forgotten what it was called, but it was a drama about child soldiers directed by Kerry Fukunaga, who's directed the next Bond film. So it was a proper serious... Um, oh, Beasts of No Nation, it was called. It was a proper serious, weighty drama. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because Netflix is basically a studio, uh, you have to think about it in studio terms, that they do they do make sort of big, prestigious productions, and they do blockbuster movies. They did did a couple of superhero-adjacent films that came out on their service over the summer. And they do Christmas romantic comedies for this time of year. And they've also released the new David Fincher film about the making of Citizen Kane. So they do all kinds of stuff. And they have done for a while. And I think it's only this year that because of circumstances people have sort of looked a bit more deeply at actually what sort of stuff they're putting out, rather than Mm. assuming that, oh, it's gone straight to Netflix, it must be crap. Hmm. which is more the case if another studio sells it to Netflix because they're just trying to offload it, um, which had previously been the case with stuff like the Cloverfield Paradox, which was garbage, or the um, the Sherlock Holmes comedy with Will Ferrell that, they tried, that Paramount tried to sell to Netflix, and Netflix said, no thanks, <laughs> but then being that wound up with critics having to go and see it on Christmas morning because they wouldn't run any press showings. Oh, blimey. I, I have actually been meaning to see that film. Everything that I've heard about it suggests that the trailer is really good because they put all the good stuff in the trailer. And if you've seen the trailer, you've seen all the good stuff. It's a film with Rafe Fiennes as Moriarty, which you think is, oh, yeah, of course. That's brilliant casting. Apparently he's in one scene and has almost no dialogue. Wow. <laughs> so My Life Without Me... Um, Sarah Polly is actually a returning um, uh, performer to Cinema Limit because she was in Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Okay. A mere 15 years earlier, she played young Sally Salt, and now she is grown up. She's um, had quite an impressive career in the meantime. She's been in a couple of dozen films since then. Um, almost all Canadian productions for the likes of Atta McGoyan and David Cronenberg. And... Um, I think this was one of her first sub- substantial leading roles as an adult. Um, she's gone on to have quite an unusual career because she did one major Hollywood movie, which was the remake of Dawn of the Dead. Right. Um, on the back of that was uh, cast in the miniseries John Adams about America's second president, in which uh, she played, I think, I think it's his wife, uh, Abigail Smith, and she has not acted in the last 10 years, instead having become a very highly acclaimed filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, her film Away From Her in 2006, only three years after this, was Oscar nominated for its script. Um, and the, her doc- documentary Stories We Tell about um, her family history was, uh, I believe, Oscar nominated for um, Best Documentary. So she's um, carved out quite an unusual career path for herself. Yeah, I should I should point out at this at this juncture that I don't really have any specific issue or criticism with any of the performances. 
in this film. I wasn't looking at this and sort of thinking, oh, I would have recast that role in you know with with so and so, which is something that I'm I'm minded to to quite often do. Usually, when I'm watching the kind of things I would normally watch, straight away the recasting in my head is going bonkers and i'm sort of saying right okay just just for fun not necessarily as a criticism of the performer in the the show or the film but because i'm sort of thinking okay well if that person hadn't been available who would they've got to, to, to play this part and so on so on so on now in this case i don't have a critique of any particular person's performance i'm sure everybody's performance was in line with what they were being asked to do what the script was asking them to do what the director was asking them to do my issue was with the structure of the film itself and the way in which the the story was allowed to play out. But we'll we'll discuss that as we go on. The film starts with narration by the main character. She talks about uh, standing in the rain and, and feeling it against you and concentrating on your senses. And there is also the image of someone playing a glass harmonica by the side of the road. <laughs> yes. that, that's... Um, it's kind of an orphaned reference because that's lifted from the music video of one of the songs on the soundtrack, which was apparently quite well known at the time. Is this, is this called Humans Like You by Chop Suey? Yes. Now, I know this because after having watched the film, then I did, you know, as I normally would do, did a little bit of you know, searching for information about it. And I did spot this. I would like to quote this in full, if I may, because... I don't know, I, I can't necessarily attribute this as a, a key flaw in the picture itself, but I think that there's maybe something here about the overall sort of mindset behind this. So somebody had added on IMDb this piece of trivia, said the recurring clip, exactly as you said, the recurring clip of the man at the side of the road using crystal glasses as musical instruments is actually going back to the music video for one of the featured songs in the film score. Humans Like You by Chop Suey had an official music video which featured the same figure playing with crystal glasses in it. This confused a lot of viewers when My Life Without Me was first released because it wasn't ever explained to the audience. That, I think, is sort of... I don't know, that that, that just puts me in in, in, the, in the frame of mind that, yeah, that there's, a, there's a little bit of arrogance behind this film, which I think manifests itself frequently and that is just one example of it just one small example of it as if to say you know there's this here there's a there's an absolute belter of an example of it later on which just knocked me out um i don't know if you have an award in cinema limbo for atrocious pieces of dialogue in films but there was definitely a really really strong nominee coming up later on okay well i i saw the 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 recurring glass harmonica it's something that is it's symbolic of her um, her mental process that it's something perhaps of no um, no real uh, physical value but something that is worthwhile and worth enjoying and worth appreciating while you can it's perhaps symbolic of all the things that she hasn't been able to experience in her life that it's this reminder of that as she keeps seeing it that life is passing her by or has passed her by I don't think it's in there just because it's I mean it, perhaps perhaps Cochette saw the music video when she was researching the, the, the soundtrack and was struck by this image and, and found it to connect in some way emotionally with the material 
I didn't really. I wasn't scratching my head at the end of it, thinking, "I wonder what that bloke with all the glasses was supposed to do." With I sort of accepted, "Yeah, okay, it's it's just you know, it's a piece of imagery because they've been doing a lot of that kind of stuff, her internal monologue and her sort of rushing along the place and what have you." And we'll get to the supermarket a bit later on, but so no, I wasn't sitting there at the end of it thinking, "Hang on, they never explained what the guy was doing with all the glasses." I didn't think it was like key to the the entire plot, but just that that little detail there about. It's it's been referenced in something which has has a loose connection with the film, but it's never actually. There's no seed planted in there to say what this is to do with. Uh, there's just a sort of vague assumption. Well, obviously, people will know what this means. Have you not seen any Canadian films before? Canadian films? Uh, yes, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But is this is this a like a particularly famous Canadian music video that everybody knows? No, but you know Canadian films. You know what Canadian films are like. You know they all. <laughs> you know they've got they've got glass harmonicas for days. <laughs> there was some National Film Board of Canada films that they used to put out in like the the summer mornings that usually were narrated by Leslie Nielsen and had autos running around the place and what have you. They never had any of that business. The only one I ever the only one of those I ever remember was about a cow pat. Was, does that? Mean- that's what it was about. Was it that, it that was, was about a, a cow pat, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's stuck in my mind. Is it called that? About a cow pat? It was called cow pie, because that's what they call them there, I think. Wow. And it had Leslie Nielsen as the narrator. I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't a documentary. Oh, it wasn't? Oh, that's a shame. No, it no. wasn't about like the life cycle of a cow pat. Oh, okay, right. No, that's that's, Cause that's that, a pity. Because that, that would be a real short film. Um, it would, but it depends on just how in depth you go. And I don't have any. Wish I don't to want to see. go in depth. No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't want to see. I don't want to see this in Sky documentaries. I don't want to. I don't want to see the sweet corn. Oh, oh, he went there. Oh man, <laughs> I thought this was a high class joint. Oh, yeah, you're the you're the one who came in complaining about symbolism. You push me, I'll push back. I, I didn't realise that, that that this was Roy Chubby Brown territory. Oh my god! You said oh. a, you said a rude word earlier. Did I? I'm going to have to put an explicit tag on this now, and it's your fault. <laughs> bango, yeah, bango, all my primary school listeners. Well, is is this? I wouldn't have thought that this 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 subject was necessarily suitable uh, for well, uh, no. the, the rainbow slot. No. Well, no, it's too long. Anne works as a um, a cleaner in a university, and she has a friend named Laurie who's trying to quit smoking and lose weight, even though she's a big eater. And while she's even working, she's thinking about corn. Hmm, yeah. Um, You're going back to corn again. Yeah. Well, see, it's it's all it's like it's all subconscious connections. You see. Are you, are you suggesting that there were subliminal images of sweet corn and or cowpats throughout this film that I didn't pick up on? No, but that's why I was talking about sweet corn because I was making a subliminal connection to what was written in my notes. Isn't it, isn't the human mind fascinating? Do people listen to this podcast while they're having their dinner? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. Well, no, no, no. I think yeah, people realise that now. I wish, I wish I hadn't got started. Not, well, this. not this week anyway. I, mean, I wish if... I hadn't got started in this tuna and sweet corn baguette. No, well, Oh, I mean, God. if uh, if you were listening to say the episode on um, Jaws: The Revenge or um, the car, then I can't think of anything better to eat a meal by. But um, maybe not this or Highlander Two or um, 
No, even Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. That's a lovely soundtrack, though, isn't it? Yes. So she comes home from her work um, and picks up her mother, who works in a bakery, also on the night shift. And uh, Anne listens to language tapes in her car, and she's quite dismissive of her mother's attitude towards it. Her mother says, oh, why can't you just listen to the radio like a normal person? And Anne says, there's no such thing as normal people. They get home as other people are heading off to work, and her mother goes into the house while Anne walks around the outside of the house to a trailer parked in the back garden and goes inside, where her husband, Dan, and her two daughters are living. Her two daughters being Patsy and Penny, who are um, just starting school age, I think, sort of five or six. And... Um, she gets breakfast ready for them and as she's working she suddenly has severe pain and winds up collapsing as her mother's hanging up the laundry um, they go to hospital where there is a very difficult nurse whom they have to deal with and um, Anne tries to pass a message to, back to her mother so that she will collect her children from school she ends up losing her temper and yelling at someone I've written some notes here. I, I I can't quite remember what they connect to. Um, okay, I, I, I have um I, I have uh, an issue. Okay, I'm putting my hand up here. Right, point of order. Okay, because this this is my first issue with the the, the text. We'll say because like like I say again, it's not a critique of performances or anything like that. Okay, my first query I've got here um, is why is almost everyone and specifically the main character so bloody rude? Because this was really getting on my nerves for uh, the bulk of this film. And particularly the fact that she is having a go at the medical professionals who are trying to help her. So, long time ago, okay, uh, true story. I get the uh, the old sort of chest pains and what have you. And I take myself into A&E. And I was there for about three hours and had me wired up to all manner of things and just, you know, checking like the heart rate and all this kind of stuff doing the x-rays and what have you and I was just ever so grateful for everything that they did and very very appreciative and thankfully everything was, was fine there was no problem there and I was thinking of that whilst I was watching Anne uh, basically haranguing these nurses saying yeah but my kids my kids are at school I mean I need to pass this message on like, like it's the nurse's responsibility to do that and then when she's speaking to the the, the doctor um, and he obviously has realised what's happening and he says can you excuse me for a moment and she says sure, it's your hospital I thought if I'd gone into A&E and within like 10 minutes been saying excuse, excuse me, excuse me um, can, can anybody tell me how long this is going to take please because you know I have been waiting here actually uh, I think you'll find it's a season finale of Still Open All Hours this evening, and if I miss as much as 30 seconds of that, then I'm going to be writing a very strong, strongly worded letter to the health board, just so you know. I I could I could not get this out of my head. Why is she so bloody rude to everybody? And I do realise that by saying that now, based upon what you're about to say to do with the plot, it's going to make me sound terrible. But this is before, this is before the reveal Okay, so so she's being bloody yes. rude to everybody before she gets the news. Let, let me just emphasise that point. I think it's a demonstration of different experiences. 
for you, the worst thing that can happen is you miss the season finale of Still Open All Out. <laughs> no, that, no, I should point out, I made that bit up, by the way. That, that, actually, <laughs> that, that wasn't actually happening the day I was in the any. In every lie, there is a kernel of truth. <laughs> um, but for her, she's, she's had a lifetime of disappointment and toil. Her father has been in jail for 10 years. She lives in a, a trailer in her mother's back garden with two young children whom uh, I think it's heavily implied weren't planned but and although she loves them a great deal and cares for them a great deal it it would it would be untrue to say that they weren't a burden financially and emotionally she has a husband who is not as feckful as he could be um, he's unemployed and is not a great deal of help even though he too is is notionally kind and reasonably thoughtful and not you know, not a bad person anyway. He's just not as good as he could be. And it only takes so much to sort of push you over the edge when you are already in a precarious position. There's the saying that we're only three meals from savagery. She needs to have someone connect her children. She needs to have someone get a message out that's, that her mother or her her husband or some trusted person needs to collect her children. That is her absolute priority beyond everything else, and she is not concerned with anything else beside that. Not her health, not the feelings of the nurses around her. This is the absolute priority. And it's her focus on that, I think, that is causing her to be difficult. Later, when she's talking to the the doctor, the doctor is not as... I mean, he is never portrayed as being particularly um, demonstrably kind. He does her a kindness over the course of the story, but you know it's it's that it's that Canadian reserve. He's he's not particularly friendly. He's not especially sympathetic. He's not unpleasant. He's not no, rude. He's not offering a great deal of emotional connection and support. And I think the the, the, the one of the film's themes, I think, is the lack of emotional support and fulfilment for people in this uh, uh, um, stratum of life i don't know i just it 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 served my view of her as a character which stayed with me throughout the film i i was i was thinking am i supposed to be in sympathy with her and i know what's coming obviously because we all know what's coming we know what's coming from the synopsis so it's not like you know oh i felt yeah, it's, terrible it's not, you know, it's like five minutes huge, yeah. yeah it's not a yeah, huge I didn't, twist. yeah i didn't feel you know terrible five minutes later thinking oh what a bad person i am but I, I, the whole time i'm just sort of thinking okay yeah she's got she's got her problems she's had you know difficult upbringing and what have you she's got a difficult home life yeah that's fine that's not the fault of the people who are trying to help her that's not the fault of the nurses it's not the fault of the doctor that none of that is their concern they're Absolute, trying no. to help her so th- this not. this is that, that really just it just that just soured my view of her uh and very I, early on and I, I, the uh, things that she was doing later on just sort of hammered home uh my my um not this not dislike of her that's that's too strong but i was not well disposed uh, to her you you cannot justify yelling at nurses or any medical professionals when they are doing their jobs efficiently. Mm. But then that leads you to ask, why is it that she's doing it? What reason does she have where she feels this is acceptable? What 
path has she been on that leads her to the point where this is acceptable behaviour or justifiable behaviour for her? So although you're not, I don't think you're meant to find it sympathetic, you're meant to think, why is she like this? And then I think over the course of the story, we get more of an illustration of why she's, because as, as, as things turn out, she's seen by the doctor and she has an ultrasound and it turns out that she has ovarian cancer, which is spreading and she has probably only a couple of months to live. Um, and so just to telescope the rest of the film, she uses the time to live the life that she wanted as much as she can and to leave a legacy behind her of making sure the people she cares about are looked after, making sure that she is able to do as much of what she always wants to do as she can, but to make sure that her family is supported as be as much as possible, that her mother is is not as you know, alone and bitter as, as she has been, that her... Uh, her relationship with her father at least is repaired slightly. So she does develop over the course of the story, I think, from someone who is quite difficult and bitter into someone who is forced to become more open and become perhaps more selfless. Okay, now, I think that this this may be the reason why we've got very different sort of views of this film um and i apologize for pissing all over you know a film that, that you obviously really like because uh, that wasn't my intention but i didn't have that reaction i was not curious as to well, why is she being like that why is she being so sort of mean and so rude and what have you that wasn't my reaction at all my reaction at that point was purely these are the people who are trying to help you right now so respond in kind because your past, your business, your home life is not their responsibility. They are not responsible for your babysitting arrangements. They're not responsible for what's happened to you in your past. How many people do you... I mean, even as illustrated in the point where she's in the waiting area, how many people do you think that they're going to see every single day? How many times do you think that they have to give bad news to people every single day? Now... I'm sort of tying this in with that line. I didn't comment it. I didn't comment on it when you mentioned it before, but I had made a note of it because it it sort of jarred with me. When she's in the car with her mum, and she says, "No one's normal, mum. There's no such thing as normal people." Now, I'll give. I'll, I'll say one thing for this film. I think this film. What this film is actually. This film is is dated as two thousand and four, but the copyright at the end was two thousand two, wasn't it? So I don't know if this took some time to maybe was it did it take a little while to get released in the states or something like that i think it was i think it was probably filmed in 2002 it did the festival circuit in 2003 and was released later that year okay. i don't know why it says 2004 because it came out in the uk and the us in 2003 okay so one thing i'll say for this film i think that this has neatly um not necessarily predicted i don't think it's looking into the future but it seems to work quite well as a marker for a particular type of mindset that seemingly is uh, prevalent, you know, these days. And and I know I'm saying this as a 43-year-old guy, so maybe I'm completely out of tune with life in the 21st century. But there was a particular book title that was in my head as I was watching this. It was a book by Lynn Truss uh, many years ago called Talk to the Hand, The Utter Bloody Rudeness of Everyday Life. And amongst other things, this was talking about 
exactly that. Just just how um, casually um, impolite and obnoxious a lot of people can be in their everyday discourse. Coupled with a particular thing, and you probably, Jimmy, you've probably got a better word for this than I have, but it's a particular thing that you see a lot of in popular culture today and also in a lot of advertising, which is exactly that sentiment. No one's normal. There's no such thing as normal people. Everyone's special. Every Everyone matters. Everyone, you know, it's all about, it's all about you. It's not, you know, forget all the naysayers. Push them all to one side. It's about you. It's about what you can be and so on and so on. Now, if no one's normal, um, that, that's that's a that's a meaningless statement. Everyone's unique. That's 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 fine. Yeah, everyone's unique. I'll you know, grant you that. Of course they are. But this business about everyone's special, you know, and I I will be heard. I must be heard now. I have things to say on a lot of topics, and I will be heard, and no one will stop me. It fits in with the um, the expansion of social media, particularly Twitter, these days, and. A general feeling that um, for the modern generation, and I don't mean to use broad brushstrokes, I'm not saying everybody, but for a large part of you know maybe the younger generation, there's this sort of feeling now that you, you must have your say and what matters to you is all that matters and I'm going to have my say and I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm first, I'm coming first. Everybody's sort of thinking in that mindset and I find that very unappealing. Uh, trait in modern life um, when you see things like what's happened over the past year for example um, it suddenly brings that kind of mindset crashing right down because then everybody realizes actually um, we're all in the same boat we all need to look out for one another we all need to act together um, as a community and help other people and they will help us and so on this the best way I can purely describe it is self-centered um, mindset that you see so much in popular culture today. Um, it just it doesn't do it for me, uh, and I thought that this was the epitome uh, of that. Um, not just not just in this scene, obviously, but in you know bits and pieces that are going to come later on. Um, and I just I just find it so so unappealing. Um, I think it's part of the reason why I don't I don't really tend to watch a lot of modern. Um, drama. It's not the only reason. There's other reasons as well, which we'll come to. But I don't tend to watch a lot of modern drama um, because I, I tend to find that there is um, an expectation, a lazy expectation on the part of the uh, the writer and or the director that I've said that this person here is the person that you, the viewer, are going to be in sympathy with. And therefore, anything that they say or do must be considered as part of the larger text uh, and therefore, if you are out of sympathy with them, then you're wrong, basically. Then you need to look at yourself in the mirror. Um, that was a very long-winded answer, but I think that that probably goes some way to explaining my uh, um, ease feeling uh, with this storyline. Well, that wasn't how I read that particular line of dialogue. So uh, I would I would say that her... Her point about it not being there being no such thing as normal people being there's no there's no such thing as someone who adheres to all social norms, and that uh, she does listen to music later, and it's just that uh, you know the question being why 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 won't you adhere to all the social norms or including not listening to language tapes in the car? 
her response is, well, why should I? So that, 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 I wouldn't have had a, a problem with that. I wouldn't have had a problem with that as a response if she just said, look, it's my car, right? I'm driving. Listen to what I bloody well want. I, mean, I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. Up until that point, yeah, my sympathy is, is, is with Anne. Um, but when she starts doing that business about, oh, you know, there's, there's no such thing as normal. We're all special. We're all unique. I know she's not saying all those things, but that that's the meaning that I'm extrapolating from it. Um, and that, to me, is is fundamentally... Uh, nonsense because if you say that no one's normal then you're also saying that everyone's normal then um, everyone's unique yeah I get that but when you start saying everybody is special and so on um, then it, it has a reductive um, uh, effect I wouldn't uh, say that the the inference is everyone's special I would say it's everyone is different yeah well, if she said everyone's different or everyone's unique I wouldn't have had a problem with that um, but the, it, it seemed to be a very clunky sort of um, piece of dialogue where that could have been communicated with more sort of natural discourse. That that to me sounds like a piece of dialogue which is floating around looking for somewhere to drop it into the script and could be dropped anywhere. But it's like you know that that's that's the big headline. That's that's you know, the thing you got to take away from this. So here's a place to put it, rather than having, you know, proper dialogue between the mother and daughter. So the doctor offers. Um some advice and follow-up appointments as well as um, offering a, a bag of more sweets because Anne's been helping herself to sweets during their, um, their consultation. Um, and she notes in her monologue that her father was an alcoholic. Um, so now that she's, uh, she, she's been uh, clean for many years but now she's sort of planning on having to take all the drugs that she'll need to take, and she's has very mixed feelings about that. When she gets home, she lies to her mother and says that, oh, it was just anemia. Uh, and that's sort of her running lie through the rest of the film when she has any sort of health issues that crop up. Oh, it's, it's, just, it's just anemia that I'm supposed to be taking medication for. Her, can I, can, I, can I just, sorry, can I just, just add one little bit to that? I don't want to take, I don't take a long time on this, but just because you landed upon that particular piece of dialogue there. I'm not making any kind of judgment personally on the rights and wrongs as to whether she tells anyone or not about her condition because I don't think that unless I was in that position myself that I could decide what I would do under those circumstances. So um, the, the bit that got me was when she was having that internal monologue there. And I made a point of, of noting this down because... Um, okay, right... There's clunky dialogue and there's crediting your audience with uh, very little intelligence and occasionally the two will meet. And this, I thought, was one of those instances. So she says here, she's saying to herself that her father used to drink a bottle of bourbon for breakfast. She says, you, I, get wired on just one beer. Uh, I, didn't take, I didn't take drugs in high school, just the odd drag of her husband's joint, without inhaling like that guy who used to be president of the United States. That guy, Bill Clinton. Now, there's only two ways that I can interpret this. Either Anne has the memory of a goldfish and has to remind herself who the president of the United States, which is a weird way of phrasing it in your own internal monologue anyway, because I suspect the people in the United States do not say president of the United States, they would say president if it's an internal monologue this film's and, canadian 
Okay, no, okay, no, no, you're quite right. No, I will retract that statement. You're quite right. No, I cocked up there. Yep. Okay, but having to then say that guy, Bill Clinton. Now, the only other way I can interpret that is that the the writer and or director does not credit the audience with enough intelligence to remember that Bill Clinton uh, famously said that he didn't inhale and is now thinking that the entire cinema-going audience is now engaged in a conversation with itself, all sort of muttering to each other. Who was the president who said he didn't? It was a Nixon. It wasn't Nixon, was it? Was it Reagan? No, Reagan. No, Reagan didn't do joints. No, it was, was it was it Bush? Did Bush do a spliff? No. And and she has to then, you know, uh, excuse me, excuse me. Um, I'm talking about Bill Clinton. So just to clear up any, you know, misapprehension there. But uh, I didn't know that. That to me was... Mm, uh, I'm sort of pulling me here uh, at that point because I thought, no, 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 no. That, that, please, come on. <laughs> Give the audience some credit, for Christ's sake. It did not need to be said as a punchline. I think it's just a, a particular quirk in the way that they decided to write the dialogue. I mean, it's worth noting that um, Couchette doesn't actually speak English as the first language so that there is a certain leeway in terms of how the dialogue is written. Um, but I think, it, I think it's just a particular quirk in, in the way that the speech is written and meant to, meant to be written as um, uh, sort of more conversational. Um, I mean, it, it seemingly, I mean... I, I, can, I can understand it. I can understand that the, what the way it's, it's formed is, is irritating, but... There needs to be a certain proportionality between how much dialogue there is and how much it's annoying you. Yeah, well, no, but I mean, it's, a script editor would, would just correct that in, in seconds. It, it would just be uh, without inhaling, you know, like Bill Clinton. That, that, that's it. Done. Job done. Um, there you go. Um, or if you say without inhaling, like, you know, the ex-president. But to spell it out in that manner, like the guy who used to be president of the United States, that guy, Bill Clinton, that sounds like um, it's one of our language learning tapes. That That's just not normal. Um, it's not a normal uh, piece of dialogue uh, that you'd either say or you would say in your own head. It, it just, that kind of thing just, just jars with me. It's like when, for example, if you see sitcom or a drama and... Secretary answers the phone and then says to the boss, it says, um, it's your wife, Jane. And all, all it takes is just for the secretary to say, it's your wife. And then the guy says, what, Jane? Hi, Jane. Yep. Just clunky little things like that just just take you out of the moment. Um, and well, me, anyway, prevents me from really absorbing myself in the in the text. Because if you see something really clunky like that, as if it was sort of written by some sort of automated software, then... It's really sort of hard to, to, to suspend your disbelief. I don't know. I'm coming across dreadfully in this. I do apologise, but I'm being I'm being overly critical here. But um, yeah, okay. <laughs> just just want to get that bit in there. Okay, yeah. I thought Scottish people were supposed to be cheerful. <laughs> everyone everyone that... knows everyone knows the stereotype of the cheery, generous Scotsman. <laughs> There, there, there is, a, there is a bit later on that made me smile. Okay, so yeah, you've got that to look forward to. Um, she gets home and Dan is reading the girls a story, but he's reading it far too fast. He, uh, one of the girls says that they had milkshakes for dinner, but that they weren't supposed to tell her. And um, 
although she's annoyed by this, she forgives Dan for it. And then they they play the ship game, which is, I think, uh, connected back to the, the title of the original story, Pretending the Bed is a Raft, by sort of pretending they're out at sea and that kind of thing. Dan asks her, oh, Dan mentions that um, he thought that she might have been pregnant because of um, her health issues, and she said, oh, yes, me too. And they make a plan to go to um, visit the beach uh, now that he's got a job. Um, I forget what kind of job it is. It's um, like furniture removals or something like that, I think. Didn't he say at one point he was building a swimming pool for somebody? Oh, yes, he built swimming pools. That's it. Yeah. I've, I've got to be honest, actually. I thought that he was quite a nice character. I know he's a bit of a sort of waster and he's he's drinking too much and what have you, but yeah, he obviously absolutely adores his, his kids he, and his wife. And he, um, yeah, he, he, I thought he came across uh, very well. He's he's very realistic. He's not a he's never a bad person. He's just he just doesn't quite think things through as much as he needs to. Hmm. And he's devoted to his wife. He's devoted to his children. He wants to get a job and and be able to provide for them. So, yeah, so he's never he's 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 a decent guy but he's a bit straightforward i think that I think that's the issue that he's 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 dependable and he's down the line and there's not much else to him hmm. um are you a fan of nirvana not particularly no i appreciate their position in um in music history and um I have uh, a certain appreciation for Kurt Cobain's story, but I'm, I don't really like that kind of mm. rock music generally. Yeah. No, I have, to, I have to agree on that. And interesting that they actually bonded a Nirvana concert, which he then says he really wasn't really that into at all. Yes, it was. they, they mentioned that it was Nirvana's last public gig. Um, and that's a, that's a nice story, that they, they had that sort of emotional connection. And that's the kind of story you would expect from that generation as well, the the meeting at a, a Nirvana gig. It's, it's, it just seems to fit somehow of hmm. this particular generation. Um, Anne goes to a diner. Now you're, now you're sounding like me now, this particular generation. That's the kind of thing I would come up with, 43. Well, I'm younger than you, yeah. but um, so I'm, I'm more in touch with the youth. <laughs> you you have you you have your uh, your, your finger on your finger on the pulse. Yeah, but it's mine. <laughs> what do you make um, of that TikTok anyway? Um, I, 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 what what about all these Snapchats they have now? <laughs> so I'm 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 on Instagram. I don't think I've ever posted anything on there. It's like Rick Mail who took out a Twitter account just so that no one else did. Yeah, nice, nice touch. I do. I don't get this whole business with these little circles, and I know Twitter are doing this now. And what have you? What? What is? Oh, what is fleets. Well, yeah, they call it fleets on Twitter, but on Instagram, I think they're called stories, and I think they even do this on LinkedIn now on the app. Just like everybody's got a little circle, and it's like, okay, here's something that I'm saying now, but I'm not going to be saying this in 24 hours. So, yeah. You know. My understanding is that Instagram stories are um, permanent. Oh, are although, they? Okay. Although I could be wrong. I have. I have. I don't use Instagram. I use Twitter yeah. and Facebook. The Snapchat ones, they're the ones that blow up. After Snap, like an yeah, hour. The, the yeah. idea of Snapchat is that they disappear after a certain period of time, but the, the Twitter fleets are a new addition that yeah. I have not seen anyone use. Yeah. It's a way of, I think, of Donald Trump to get rid of the evidence. <laughs> um, 
Anne goes to a diner and there's an argumentative, difficult customer there. Um, and she, she orders from the waitress just anything they happen to have that's sweet. And they don't have almost any other dessert left apart from pineapple cheesecake. And I thought, yes, that is the kind of thing that would, would be the last to go because it sounds disgusting. I'd, I'd love some of that. Pineapple oh, is the devil's food. It's foul. It's so sickly sweet. You don't want syrupy. It's revolting. You don't want the two I've got in my cupboard then. And they're, they're in juice. They're not in syrup. Oh, God. It's awful. The worst Taskmaster task I've ever seen is the one where they had to conceal a pineapple on their person. <laughs> and they wind up, and most of them wind up just eating a lot of it. I thought, God, that's torture. <laughs> The most dis- it's the most disgusting food. Almost as bad as bananas. Oh, you're not a fan of the potassium? I'll just take a pill. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I will happily take you know, a, a, a potassium tablet every couple of days for the rest of my life if I never have to see another banana. I've got to be honest. Or smell one. The problem with the bananas is that I tend to, if, if I'm in a sort of, you know, healthy sort of mood, I really should start eating more healthy food. I'll, I'll order far too much of it, and I'll get a big bunch of bananas from the supermarket, and I'll have one, maybe, and then before I know it, I'm surrounded by fruit flies. I'll, the whole place will be infested with them, and they'll be there for ages, even after you've got rid of the bananas. Well, I never have that problem. Because you so. never have bananas. No. Yeah. Apples, oranges, grapes, a pear if I'm feeling dangerous... But no, no bananas. Would you stand on banoffee pie, which is really nice? No. <gasps> really? Nope. Nothing banana related for me. <laughs> Would you stand on Banana Man? <laughs> uh, I stand on his cape. <laughs> you realise that somebody's written lyrics to the theme of Banana Man. I know this information from Tilt. He can furnish you with a, a copy well, of the lyrics if you'd like to. Yeah. I imagine. I imagine that Bill Oddie might have composed lyrics. You'd think so, but I'm not aware of there actually being lyrics sung to the tune in the cartoon itself. But now, seemingly, I don't know if they're new or if they've simply resurfaced. But yes, apparently there are lyrics to the theme of Banana Man, as there are also to the theme of Emmerdale Farm. There are also lyrics to the theme of Star Trek that Gene Roddenberry wrote so that he could claim royalties for the theme song. Nice. There is, if you're on BritBox and you're looking at all the Christmas stuff they've got, you will notice that the 1983 Last of the Summer Wine Christmas special has lyrics to the theme tune. And I think they're actually quite nice. And if you're listening to this on the day it came out, it's January, so you're probably not in the mood for any Christmas programming. (laughs) I did once discuss with a friend what was the worst possible time of the year to watch Christmas programming. And some people might say, like, the height of summer... Um, I, I actually January third, the the morning, the Monday morning that you're going back to work slash school at approximately say six a.m. Uh, and put on say a show that was originally broadcast on Christmas Eve. I think that would be the the absolute oh. depth of um, yeah. That's yeah. that's tough. Yeah. So while she's in the diner, Anne makes a list of all the things that she wants to do while she still can. And I've got the list here. She wants to tell her daughters every day that she loves them. She wants to find a new wife for her family. She wants to record birthday messages for her children up to the age of 18. To go to the, pic- to go to the beach and have a picnic. To smoke and drink as much as she wants. To say whatever she's thinking. Although, according to you, she does that oh, anyway. Oh, God, I... 
Um, she wants to try sleeping with another man to see what it's like. Uh, uh, um, because she... Point of order. Um, men, plural. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, no, but no prude, make... but, you know. Are, no, no, that's, are, that's quite standards. right. Um, accuracy. Um, she wants to make someone fall in love with her. She wants to see her father. And uh, the last thing of all, she wants to have her hair done and have false nails. And she gets into a conversation with the waitress because the waitress is planning to save up for cosmetic surgery so that she can look like Cher. And uh, putting rule number six into effect straight away and tells her that that is a really fucking stupid idea. Okay, it may not surprise you to learn that, that again, big, big, bad, bad Anne, bad Anne, you know, big, big cross there in, in my mental sort of checklist. Um, you know, context is everything. She's gone into the cafe late at night. Um, the waitress has given her her pen as well, so she can make a list, and she's gone out of her way to give her the sweetest dessert that they've got. And in response to all of that, she tells her that her lifelong dream is, quote, a really fucking stupid idea. The waitress did volunteer this information entirely, so she shouldn't expect not to get a response. But Anne asked her. She said, you know, I was to win the lottery and then asked her, asked her, what would you do then? So she's solicited the information. But it is a really terrible idea. Oh, God, yeah, it is. But, I mean... <laughs> I, mean I mean, but so are lots of things, but we don't all just blot it out. <laughs> I mean, okay, some people well, on Twitter do exactly that all day, every day. But, I mean, most normal people don't do that. Well, most normal people, normal people, ah, no, aren't, going, aren't going through the same thing that Anne's yeah, going through. Yeah. Well, no, that, 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 that's fair enough. But um, to her credit, I will, I, I should, you know, full disclosure, I should acknowledge that she does actually roll that back straight away. So, yeah. It's funny that even though she said in that list, say what I'm thinking, the few times that she tries it, most of the time she then recoils and, and tries to make amends. But it's obviously too late. But, I mean... She does anyway. Well, it's the way that she develops. These are her immediate responses of all the things that she wants to do. And like sleeping with other men, she only sleeps... She doesn't sleep with any other men, does no, she? No, I don't think so. It doesn't, it doesn't end up like a confessions film. Uh, um, she says smoke and drink as much as she wants. She doesn't smoke and drink that much. Yeah. Um, and she certainly rose back from having her hair done in a, in a particular style. Hmm. Um, um, did it... Did I miss something? She doesn't go to the beach and have a big picnic. Not, no, no, but that does come up. Um, I, the way that you were sort of going through the list there, um, it was interesting that, that you sort of, you, you mentioned about uh, make someone fall in love with me, go and see dad in jail and what have you. Now, that number eight, uh, we're obviously going to be coming back to that at some point. But um, yeah, now... I'm not the moderator of the Church of Scotland. I don't have a strong sort of moral compass about myself that I'm always judging people by. But um, make someone fall in love with me is an interesting turn of phrase to use under any circumstances and particularly in the nicest possible way when you know that you're going to be on this planet for a relatively short period of time. Yeah, it's... Because the the way that goes is, it's it's not the one way street that she writes it as. It's not a matter of her making someone else fall in love with her. It's that she falls in love with someone else 
as they fall in love with her as well. So, again, it's her thinking, firstly in terms of herself, and then as the story goes on, thinking more expansively, thinking more outside her immediate zone of um, behaviour. So yeah, that that is a that is a sign of uh, of of the of the of the selfishness mm. and the immediate um, necessity. Mm. In the same way as saying what you know, the first thing that's on her mind was saying, "Well, that's a terrible idea," and then rowing it back mm. because she realizes that she's gone a bit too far. Yeah. Now I, I know you're probably going to mention this anyway, but in between picnic and smoking and drinking, uh, a bloke who looks a little bit like boxing promoter Eddie Hearn is sitting a couple of tables away, and again. Um, sort of, you know, being hypercritical here, but he's he's a couple of tables away, okay? And later on he says, are you that girl in the coffee shop that was writing the journal the other day? How does he know what she was writing? She could have been, she could have been doing she could have been doing a crossword. She could have been doing a bloody council tax rebate form. He wasn't, he wasn't looking over her shoulder. I get, I know I'm being hypercritical, I understand that, but, you know, it's realism, for goodness sake. I think it was probably possible to tell from where he was that she was writing on a lined pad and that was writing text. So clearly not do, doing a crossword or filling out a form. I think there's, there's, there's dramatic license there. Yeah, all right, giggly. <laughs> no, so no, you've, you've got a first rule of... I know it's not comedy, but first rule of comedy is play. You've got to have reality. Okay? So, you know, don't, don't, don't put these seeds into my head and then leave me sitting there you know, for the next, you know, 40 minutes saying, has he got 2020 vision or something? Or did he ask, maybe he asked the waitress. Maybe he has got 2020 vision. Maybe he has. Maybe he asked the waitress, maybe he called the waitress over and said, excuse me, is she writing on a, on a lined um, notepad? Is it, is it like a, a could, ring binder you'd be able, type? You'd be able to see from there that she was writing I, on the on lined paper. I'm not so sure that he could, because it's flat on the table. She's not sitting there with it like, you know, like a big book like yeah, Jack and Ori. Yeah, but his eyes aren't at table level. He's not peeping over it like a little... Yeah, little goblin dwarf. <laughs> Can I have some more coffee, please? <laughs> how, what kind of crazy movie were you watching? How different the film could have been if if that just that that bit had been sort of inserted in there, and it turns out that he's yeah. Who's that character on Lord of the Rings? One with the voice. Um, I'm trying to come up with a funny answer. Gollum. That's him. Yeah. If he sounded like him, and then everything else goes exactly the same way. This is why I'm not a filmmaker, you see. <laughs> yeah, I thought that yeah, that's the main reason, isn't it? Um so the following morning they have pancakes for breakfast because she decides to have something nice for a change. She takes them to school and watches them go in and then heads to the uh, hair salon to have something different done. And despite the insistence of the braided stylist, she does not want to have braids. Um and the, the the character of the hairstylist, I think, is quite a funny little side character. Again, it's it's the odd things in life um, that make it worthwhile. It's sort of the little the little things outside one's normal sphere of behaviour that make it unusual and interesting. And I think this this character who insists on trying to give all her customers braids, and who later talks about Millie Vanilli <laughs> and how they were so hard done by. She 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 appears to be actually quoting Millie Vanilli's Wikipedia page, um, like verbatim, because she's she's incredibly um, uh, uh, clued up on on their entire career and uh, you know post success and, and every aspect of them. 
And where do you go? What? Where do you go to find these Milli Vanilli uh, based clubs anyway? I mean, are there a lot of places like with DJs who are specialising in Milli Vanilli mixes? Because I wouldn't mind some of that when all the places reopen. I I think that your um, knowledge of Milli Vanilli possibly outstrips my own. Well, you know, you know the the, the, the basic. I mean, well, you you know it from her because she's just told you everything about Milli Vanilli. You need to know. And, and... Well, she does when um, when Anne goes back. Yeah. That um, that famously they they turned out that it wasn't actually them singing. And she says, "Oh no, it it that was bec- that was because the producer wouldn't let them, because they were too good or something, some silly made up reason." Yeah, Re- yeah release the Milli Vanilli cut. <laughs> and there's a modern reference. I'm surprised you get. What? what, what? Milli Vanilli? That's not that's not modern. No, release the Snyder cut. Oh no, I don't get that. What is it? All oh, right, don't worry. I'll start talking about Enemy at the door later on. <laughs> yeah, if it's not on talking pictures, it doesn't exist. <laughs> They showed a film in colour the other day. They didn't. Oh, God, they're not going all populist, are they? <laughs> it had Liam Neeson in it. Oh. From 1992. No, you're not serious. Oh, they're going like, they're going like the British TCM. Because, you know, like, TCM in America is still proper TCM. Whereas TCM yeah, over it's here... Like a proper art, it's like a proper art house classic film channel, yeah. whereas the one over here shows Westworld it's, every day. It's exactly, yes. Yeah. I'll play... Talking pictures, don't. Don't do it. I know it's tempting, but... Honestly, but a year's time if they're showing, you know, like, oh god, I don't even know. I don't even know. I was trying to come up with a name of a modern film. I don't even know any bloody modern films. <laughs> if they're showing, I don't know who's who's modern, who's in things, who's in films. Do they still make films? I don't know. Oh, to hell with it. Anyway, yeah. So okay, so um, yeah, she goes. She goes to this Milli Vanilli bar, which i'm intrigued about because uh, hang, hang on hang on hang on what are you talking about now? no she she uh, Anne goes to this place um and she meets the, the the hairstylist who then gives her the lowdown on millie vanilli and then interrupts her and says i've got to get up on the dance floor because millie vanilli are playing and my dj friend is playing them and i'm not aware of a lot of clubs in soccer 2002 that were playing the shitload of millie vanilli but I think that that place, if that was happening, would very quickly in the locality be known as the Milli Vanilli place, the Milli Vanilli dance floor, because that's just how things work. Well, I think that if this hairstylist and her DJ friend are very into Milli Vanilli, hmm. any uh, place where he's playing a set is going to have very high levels of rotation of Milli Vanilli records mm-hmm. um, anyway. Yeah. So I can imagine that it might become known as the place that plays a lot of Milli Vanilli records, but I don't think that they, even in the early 2000s, still had any kind of sufficient fan base to support any kind of Milli Vanilli-related establishment. Oh, no, go, go, go the whole hog. It's either, you know, all, all in or not at all. So it's, it's, as far as I'm concerned now, it's a Milli Vanilli theme bar. It's not. It's not, but in my head it is. <laughs> well... That's, that's that, a lot. Going, that's, there's a lot going on in your head that shouldn't emerge into reality. That's what I'm. Ta- that's what I'm choosing to take this now. I've got. I've pressed the red button to go interactive. And if you'd like to see more of the development of the Milli Vanilli Bar, and eventually the bar itself turns up on an episode of Bar Rescue, where that guy who looks like the sort of mafia boss comes in and says, "You know the reason that this bar's sh- the shit? Well, because you know you're not getting any punters because nobody knows what the hell Milli Vanilli are. You need to get rid of all this Milli Vanilli related crap out of here and then rebrand this place. That's what needs to happen. That's what I was sort of concentrating on from this point. I've gone off at a tangent now, but you're presumably still on the, on the, the, the main track. 
sorry, I blacked out for a moment there. <laughs> as, as indeed did the, the, the listener. <laughs> that skip button is useful, isn't it, listener? Uh, Anne goes to the laundrette uh, to get the washing done, and she meets the argumentative man from the... Not the argumentative man from the diner, the other man from the diner, the one you were talking about. And he's brought with him a, a flask of coffee, which he offers to her, and she initially declines, but then catches herself and, and accepts. He has to go off somewhere, I think, and then when he gets back, Anne is asleep. So he drapes his coat over her as a blanket. And sometime later she wakes up, and it's dawn, and her coffee is cold, but her laundry's all been taken out of the machine, and it's all folded up and ready to go. Um, and uh, the man's still there, and he says that he was watching her sleep, and that since it's cold she can keep his jacket but she finds that he left a book in um, her bag of laundry and the book is a copy of Middlemarch and inside is uh, his phone number. Um, she gets home and finds that um, Penny and Patsy are being told a story by uh, her mum and it's actually the plot of a Joan Crawford film. And uh, I like that. I like the idea of... Um, the plots of old films being recycled as bedtime stories for the next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the same way that my mum would sing Beatles songs to me when I was little. That's very nice. Yeah. Um, but um, Anne tells her off because she says that you know these sorts of stories aren't suitable for uh, for children Penny and Patsy's age. And um, they should, you should be telling her a story about Cinderella instead. Um, Anne brushes their hair before uh, going to bed and they pick on each other and then Don comes home and he's drunk and he wants to cook chicken and um, at this point that the the, um, the Beach Boys God Only Knows comes on the soundtrack although it's not no, it's not the Beach Boys God Only Knows but it's someone singing it well, it's her isn't it because it is yeah, her, yeah. Because yeah, he asked her to sing to, or him. Just, just one little note about Lee. I'm going to make a bit of an odd comparison here, but would you agree that Lee is somebody who is, uh, in the nicest possible way, a sort of a wreck of a human being? He's he's a bit of a failure at life, generally, as 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 we see from his from his decor or lack of. At his home. Yeah, he's he's someone who is struggling. He's he's got a job, and he's got family, but they're quite some distance away. But it's it's stated in slightly vague terms that he got out of a terrible relationship, and he hasn't emotionally recovered from it. The the rather unusual comparison I'm going to draw is uh, with a character in a sitcom portrayed by David Jason. Not Del Boy, not Granville. Royal Bodyguard. No, 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 no. Um, a Edgar Briggs. No, um, a show which was completely forgot about until a couple of years ago when it got a DVD release. Sharp Intake of Breath. No, Lucky Fella. All oh, right. So, yeah. Um, David Jason is playing uh, a chap who's um, informally known as Shorty. And... Hit the 30 second skip button if you don't want to hear everything that happens in Lucky Fellow over 13 episodes now. So, uh, 
his girlfriend is actually having an affair with his brother um, and David Jason's character is basically just generally put upon by everyone and anything and eventually um, his partner gets pregnant uh, by his brother and so then decides to get married to Shorty and pretend that the baby is his and then realises that she's not pregnant and then calls off the wedding. So Shorty is a, 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 a just a, a, a awful tragic character and if you took away all of the audience laughter you'd end up with a, a really just just a gut-wrenching play for today and you'd really want to just grab him and just give him a shake and say for christ's sake just man up will you and that was what sort of what i was thinking about lee in all of this because yeah he um okay yeah i know that he sort of made the first move in the laundrette and what have you but um I'm afraid there's no other way to put this, but I look upon him as a sort of pawn in Anne's game, in her list. Um, I go back to the, the, the list, uh, number eight. Make someone fall in love with me. And here comes hapless old Lee with his bare flat just full of books that he has to sit on. Uh, and she's sort of, well, there you are. Uh, she's, she's got them where she wants them. There's no kind of way of putting that, but unfortunately it's just it's a way that he comes across. Um, which doesn't make it any easier uh, for him uh, when the inevitable comes. He's someone who is just about keeping his head above water. And given that Anne is, in, to begin with, already in the same situation, I think over the course of their relationship she realises this connection with him. I don't think, at, at first perhaps it was a little more manipulative, but I think that she, I think, does come to love him and does perhaps regret her earlier um, behaviour. Certainly, he's, as you say, he's the one who makes the first move. She doesn't really mm. do anything mm. apart from accepting a, a, a an offer of coffee from him. So it's... He, I wouldn't say necessarily he's the one with the power in the relationship. I don't think it's as no. as as cut and dried as that. But there is a there is a balance to it, and there is a more um, emotionally plausible aspect to it. I think this this does not put me in a very good light. But I feel that that, that this is uh, I, I, is it fair to say, Jeremy, that this 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 podcast is a forum where we can all be open and honest with each other about our views and about our feelings. There's no point coming on here and just pretending otherwise. Okay, so I'm going to say this because it's written down in my notes. But I'm also distancing myself from this. This does not reflect my views, even though they are my words. I've written here. She's known him five minutes in the laundrette and now they're doing it in his car. You expect this behaviour from Robin Asquith. Now, at this point, I think it's only appropriate that I resign from something uh, and spend uh, the oh, rest of my bye. spend the rest of my days in, in, in you know um, in guilt. So movie jail. Yeah. Um, well, if that kind of behaviour isn't for you, then that's <clears> entirely <throat> your business. But um, one has to uh, one has to accept characters' behaviour on their own terms. I, I, I should point out just just for the avoidance of doubt that this this film is not actually in real time. 
So it is not the case that they've just met and no. wandering. And then you see the it's, clock ticking, and then before you know it, they're they're out in the you know, the car park. It's, no, it's not like that. No, it's it's sometime later, and they have you know, they spend they spend a reasonable amount of time together beforehand. Um, Anne, uh, as she's going off to work later, greets her neighbour in passing. Uh, we'll see a bit more of her later. And while sitting in her car with a tape recorder and a big box of tapes, she goes through and records a birthday message for both of her daughters for the next more than a decade. And I think this is one of the film's signature scenes. It's actively preparing for you not being around anymore and thinking through what will the people who are most important to me are most or who or who for whom i am important what will they need after i'm no longer here what what can i provide now and she comes up with all these these sincere messages and they're all sort of supportive and offering advice and it's something like you know what to do about boys and that kind of thing as they get older and it's so it's sincere it feels sincere that her her love for her children are sort of override everything else as you look back at the list the first four things on the list of ten are all things related directly to her family and solely directly related to her family that is always her priority. So, yes, you could say that there is a certain selfishness in her behaviour, but when she's listing actual priorities for the next few weeks that she has, her family is more than half of, is nearly half of that already, and those are the first things that she thinks of. Yes. No, I don't have any. Don't have any truck with that. No. Um, while she's at work, she is having stomach pains, and she talks again to her friend about uh, her friend. Incidentally, is played by Amanda Plummer, daughter of Christopher Plummer, indeed, Canada's greatest actor. I was sort of just again, sort of uh, mind going off at a tangent. I was sort of hoping that she was going to do a sort of Dave Lodge and Q type business at some point and say, "I don't have to be in this," you know. I was in, that was in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, you know what my dad is. He was in the sound of music. Bloody well, have a go at me for eating too much. Oh, I'll have a go at you for something. Um, and her, uh, she, she's worried about Anne, and and sort of uh, doesn't quite pour her heart out to her because she doesn't tell her the truth about what's happening. But she says that you know, without without dreams, it's, you can't really live. And uh, you know, I've had no contact with my dad and. Um, her friend, who who thinks she's been on a diet, says, "You know, I, I want you to do something for me. Whatever it is you do, don't give me the name of the diet that you're on." And I think that helps to to break the tension a little. I'm I'm I appreciate that that I'm coming across quite quite negatively towards this film, so I'm not even going to mention I'm not even going to mention what my my view was of that particular scene. Okay, but you you can you can presume. She calls uh, Lee to return his book and goes to his house. And as you say, it's it's very empty. There's piles of books and he hasn't got around to buying any furniture. He doesn't even have anything in his kitchen. And it's because he 
has this feeling that his ex might come back. Um, even though we get the feeling that she isn't coming back, but he 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 just hasn't he hasn't emotionally recovered from that relationship at all, really. Um, and his job is that he's a surveyor for um, transport infrastructure, so he has to travel a great deal. Anne shows him pictures of his daughters, and he says, oh, "They look, they look happy. They look like you." And he also says that uh, his sister sends him tapes of music to listen to for when he's travelling around. So, um, <laughs> because he doesn't have a tape player, they get into his car and listen to a song, and it's a, a Spanish song with strings, and eventually Anne says, if you don't kiss me, I'm going to scream. And there's a pause for a moment, and then she starts screaming. So Lee kisses her. I was I was rather hoping that when when she said about what kind of music is you'd like to listen to, he was going to say, "I don't think there's a bigger Millie Vanilli fan on this planet than me." And she's like, "Oh God, what is it with Millie Vanilli? Did I did I miss something?" I think if if there had been some connection earlier where they had met at the bar and the 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 hairdresser had been there, then it could have been like a a shared joke between them, and that would have been really nice and sweet, but. I, I I think that yeah, as you say, there is a reason why you're not allowed to make films. That you specifically. That this this is this is reminding me of of, of something actually. Um, uh, was once on a first date, um, which strangely enough actually didn't lead to a second one, uh, for reasons that I'll explain shortly. Um, but okay, in in the course of the the sort of rather torturous conversation over like a couple of hours, um, the lady in question. Uh, she's. We got into the subject of films. Um, we're discussing favorite films, and she starts to cite this film that she absolutely adores, starring MC Hammer. And okay, again, and I know I've said this before. This does not paint me in a very good light. Do not judge me too harshly for this. But by this point in the evening, I've sort of already twigged, as I'm sure she has, that there is not going to be a follow up. There's not going to be a sequel to this date. And. <clears throat> Just to sort of amuse myself more than more than anything else, when she's telling me this, and she's telling me this like really sincere story about you know this this film with MC Hammer's got real depth and it's like an undiscovered classic. You might know what it is, I don't know, um, but I'm listening to all this and I'm saying, so at the end of it, um, did he did he do it? And she said, what? I said, did he do the you know the the dance? Did he do the song? It's as if he breaks character at the end of the film and say, yeah, I know, right? I'm MC Hammer. You you want to see it, don't you? Right then, and goes through the whole you know all the movements and sings the whole song at the end, and just no tough crowd, wrong time. She just said, no, no, he didn't do any of that. And honestly, I was sort of hoping that there was going to be something of that ilk. Uh, at the end of this film, that some sort of Millie Vanilli tribute act was going to suddenly spring up and just give us a way performance, you know, of their classic hits that I can't bring to mind just now. But it was not to be. You began this mm. podcast by saying that I was a cultured uh, one. Now, I think that you're now sort of, you know, backtracking on that assessment. I was referring to uh, mainly... Knowledge of on the buses. <laughs> now you're talking. Um, 
This is not, in fact, we've previously done an MC Hammer related film on the podcast, Last Action Hero, which he was apparently in. Okay. No. Which I've forgotten yeah. about. Um, she visits the doctor's uh, surgery again for a follow up appointment, and he has ideas for various uh, for treatments, for a biopsy, but she turns everything down because she doesn't want her family to remember her sick and and frail in a hospital bed but she hands over the box of recorded tapes and makes the doctor promise to hand them over one year at a time to uh, to her family but the doctor did also bring a, a big bag of the candies that she'd been eating before as promised yeah he kept, he kept his as, word. as promised because yes. yeah he's he's not friendly but he's a good doctor He's he's caring for his patients without um, getting particularly sort of emotionally engaged. So, right, well, I said I would give these tapes to your family because that's what they need. Okay, that's a very it's a very professional attitude to have. It's very Canadian, I think. Um, and then we get to the bit that I think you're going to uh, have another problem with, which is the scene in the supermarket. Um. <laughs> okay. No. No, 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 it's, it's fine. It's okay. Didn't you mention earlier that you had a problem with it? I didn't necessarily have a problem with it. It was just, um, it was, it was just, it was just there. Um, and my problem was not the fact that, that she's imagining them all dancing around. Um, my problem was with her sort of saying, and that sort of, you know, this monotonous, dialogue that she's constantly got going on in her head you know nobody nobody ever thinks of death in a supermarket you know just thinking about all the all the the the, the horrible greasy food that they're, they're looking forward to shoving down their throats and what have you without a care in the world as to, to what it's going to do to them i'm sort of thinking you know there was actually a fruit and veg aisle in this supermarket they've got bottled water there's probably a section over there that's got vitamins it's not it's not just you know untipped cigarettes and pork scratchings for christ's sake i mean bloody hell they're just supermarket workers trying to do their job just leave them alone she's not having a go at the supermarket workers yeah. I don't think we even see any what? no she, well, the elements are dancing about and, and the, the woman oh. yeah the woman in the till she's trying to sort of make out in her head that the woman in the till is like really sort of pleased to see her and, and the fact that she's buying this stuff which is she's sort of worked out as sort of unhealthy in some way or another uh, and sort of thinks yeah you're you know the, the, the face of this you know giant you know uh corporate behemoth um but no she's just cashier just doing her job she's just there she's just trying to get through the day exactly and that, that and this this is this is how Anne is getting through her day she's already given up the idea of saying whatever's on her mind because she's not actually telling the cashier to her face i think you're a puppet of the corporate establishment <laughs> she's 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 thinking it she's saying yeah, maybe I won't. Best not. Yeah, no, I, I, I will. I will admit. I will admit that I don't warm to Anne during the film, but I, I dislike her less as the film goes on because she does sort of moderate her, her, her um, habit of, you know, just coming out with the first thing that's in her head. She's sort of by the by towards the end of it, she's sort of pulling back on that now. Uh, so. Because. Because time is running out for her, and she's realizing that 
before she could just she was perhaps able to act without consequence. Now she knows that things will have consequences because she's not going to be able to... She won't be around to fix them or to undo them. So she's she's perhaps being a bit more moderate in her behaviour towards others and being more... more open emotionally, perhaps. Yeah. Because yeah. because being, being closed off... Not closed off, but being constrained the way that she was isn't how she wants to live her life and now with this deadline she realizes well i ha- i have to now but i have you know if i want to live my live live my life on my terms this is what i have to do now um they have ribs for dinner at home and um dan made a sauce which it turns out was something like Ketchup mixed with mayonnaise or something. No, he had absurdly he simple. Added honey to barbecue sauce, which actually sounds quite nice. Yes, that does actually sound. I'm nice, not a fan of barbecue but... sauce generally, but adding a dash of honey, yeah, that that's lovely. Have you ever had Jack Daniel's Tennessee honey whiskey? Very nice. I don't drink whiskey. Neither do I, but I do like the the honey infused whiskey. Okay. Get yourself well, get yourself a... a miniature. Add it to your your favorite soft drink. You know, there you go. Oh, I've I've had whiskey and coke, and it was disgusting. No, but that's odd. That's odd. Oh, I've had the bloody mic again. That's ordinary whiskey and coke. Honey infused whiskey and coke. Wow, lovely. Okay. I'm not paid shill, by the way. I'm not. I don't have a sponsorship deal with Jack Daniels. <laughs> Other whiskies are available. Uh, who do you think's paying for our um, website capacity? <laughs> and um, it's at this point that we hear the story about how. Um, Anne and Anne and Dan, blimey, um, how they met, and um, one of the children calls. Um, hang on, I think I've missed a bit. No, because they invite our friend over. The, the, no, yes, no, no, no. Yeah, no. This, no. If you're gonna, if you're gonna put up a defence of this, no, this is this is gonna take some doing, because they they invite her friend who was in Pulp Fiction, over, uh, for dinner. Okay, and we've already established that Laurie has a, a bit of a sort of overeating problem, right? Um, and they're sitting there, and all she did was say, "Can I have some more mashed potatoes?" And then one of the kids says, "You're a pig." Now you can't help what the kid's going to say. I appreciate that, but what what did it for me was the fact that Anne and Dan were there and sitting there laughing about it afterwards, not in front of Laurie, obviously. But I'm like, I'm like, yeah, she's supposed to be your friend. What are you doing? Why, why are you sitting here having a good giggle about this? And there's no, there's the, this business about how she realises that she can't just say whatever she's thinking because she's not going to be around to fix it. I didn't see her trying to fix that problem. That's pretty much the last we see of Lottie um, in, in the film, apart from one little glimpse later on. So that damage was done, and I didn't see Anne or Dan doing anything to, to try and rectify it. My notes are not terribly good on this bit, so I didn't even write down that Laurie was there. Well, she invites her around for dinner, doesn't she? And then, yes. then that leads I rem- into... I remember, yeah. yeah. But that, that then leads into the rather confusing business about the fact that she's suddenly now got a next-door neighbour who's also called Anne and looks a little bit like Laurie. That's what was confusing me, because I suddenly thought, oh, does Laurie live there as well? And then I realised, hang on a minute, no, she's not called Laurie. She's called Anne as well. There's two Annes. Right. Yeah. You have seen her before. But now, suddenly, she's got a next-door neighbour called Anne, and she's going to leave her kids with her. Well, she she greets her neighbour earlier. She sort of waves at her as, as they go by, and, and the neighbour waves back. 
Oh, I, I um, didn't know. I didn't. I didn't pick up. I think. I think you pick up on on detail much better than I do with these things. Well, I pay attention. Um, Dan uh, notes how hard Anne works, and he says, "I want to be better for you." So again, it, as as you say, he's he's a he's a decent guy. Yeah. He's not he's not done anything bad or wrong. I mean, he got drunk and came home was a bit of a nuisance, but he could have done a lot worse. And that's the worst thing he does in the film. He's just kind of there's there's not much beyond this for him. Yeah. Then the daughters are playing as witches while the neighbors watch and Anne goes to uh meet um Lee on the cliffside and they play music in the car and dance. And um and Anne tells stories, and then I've written Splash. Is she telling the story of the film Splash? Is she telling the children Oh yeah, they get home and Anne Anne number two mm. is telling them a story about a mermaid, and I think it's the plot of the film Splash. Been a long time since I saw Splash, but yeah, we'll go with that. I know the Empire State Building was 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 invoked at some point. Something about Madison? Against the name of the mermaid in the film? Um Um Neighbor Anne says that she doesn't want to have children, um, that she works as a nurse, and that she had cared for two conjoined twins who'd been born. No, the, yeah, there were conjoined twins um, who, they were, conjoined who, were, sharing, twins who were, sharing, were sharing organs and they only had a... Uh, they, they obviously realised that they didn't have a long time to live. So, yeah. so um, she stayed with them for the 30 hours that they were alive and she cared for them as much as she could. And this is obviously a parallel with with Anne's situation. Um, okay, this seems uh, an appropriate point for me to to go semi serious for a minute. Okay, so I know that I, I might say I don't. I really don't mean to sound flippant about you know my my issues with this film, and I feel bad about the fact that obviously I'm speaking to the listeners now, Jeremy. Listeners, I feel okay. bad about the fact that I'm obviously you know. Slightly spoiling, you know, a film that Jeremy really obviously likes, and I don't mean to do that. But okay, I had a lot of different sort of um, things going through my head when this particular scene was playing out. Um, and again, I'm going to draw another unusual sort of parallel. Um, okay, by this point, I um, how could I put this? Um, I'm not willing, and maybe I would have been if I'd been the target audience for this film, you know, like maybe early, mid-twenties or so. But right now, I'm not willing to automatically find favour with whom the writer decides I'm supposed to, based upon the way that, that they've, you know, written the text and, and the way that they've developed the story and so on. I'm, I'm going to react to things as I see them in the film. And in this particular instance... Um, we'll say Anne 1 and 2, okay? Anne 2 says she doesn't have kids and she doesn't want to have kids. And that's it. That's all she said. The reason that she tells that story about a traumatic event in her life is because Anne 1 keeps prodding her and is throwing out suggestions and will not let go. She's like, you know, she's got a bone and she's not going to let go of it. And so eventually she provokes Anne too into um, telling this very upsetting story. And then at the end of all that, it gets like a tearful response from Anne 1. And Anne 2 says, oh, I'm so sorry. 
I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't mean to upset you. I wouldn't have told the story if I, if I thought it was going to upset you. And I'm thinking, well, you told the story because Anne One made you tell that story. This is where I really start having a problem with the the mechanics of this film. The best way I can describe this overall. At no point did I actually lose myself in the story. The entire time that I'm watching this, I'm aware that I am watching a film because the mechanics of it are on display so clearly. It is like watching a magician go through the act where all the props are made of glass. And so by this point, um, there is no way that I'm going to uh, be in sync with what you know, filmmaker, writer wants me to be in sync with as far as Anne One is concerned because all I'm seeing is this manipulative um, unkind behaviour towards other characters in the film and that in particular the fact that Anne Two is the one who now feels bad about having told that story having been provoked into telling it um, that I found particularly off-putting now I know a parallel that I'm going to make I know I'm not comparing like for like okay um, I presume you're familiar with the uh, Australian uh, comedy drama Muriel's Wedding. Yes. Now, saw that film back in, I think it was, I don't know, 2005. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was fabulous. It's just one of, one of those nice things where you, I didn't actually plan on watching it. I didn't even know it was on. It just happened to hit the button and there it was just about to start and just got hooked on it and just saw the whole thing. Um, and... I started to, as I was watching this, I was starting to sort of draw comparisons because they're similar running times, these films. Both are in about an hour and 40 minutes. And I was thinking about all of the different themes that were explored in Muriel's Wedding. Again, 30 second skip button if you've never seen Muriel's Wedding and you don't want to know any spoilers. But included in that film is um, the suicide of Muriel's mother and the paralysis of her best friend. Um, so based on that information, you might be thinking, "That's God, that's a really dark film, but it really isn't. I think you'd agree, Jeremy, that it's, it's actually a really um, heartwarming, sort of life-affirming film um, overall. And the way that it deals with those issues is not in a clunky fashion. It's not in a way that says, okay... Um, this scene, we are now going to press this button and elicit this response, pull this lever here. Okay, this is a response I want from audience for this bit and now change gear. It doesn't work like that. It flows naturally. The whole structure of the film uh, just all blends together and you're taken on a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And there's, there's points in the film which are very sad um, and, and quite sort of tear-jerking but not in a way that is flashing up on the screen, sort of Monty Python style, you know, tear-jerking bit coming up now, bang, bang, bang. So once I'd drawn that comparison in my mind, I couldn't really shift that. Um, and that, that's the best way I can describe my reaction to this this film overall, is that, that it, it, it felt... Um, there's a lovely line from Mark Steele. He, he, he talked about... Um, he was talking about programs like the x factor and how you know phony they are and he said it was, it was the equivalent of um somebody falling for the free card trick where the cards are facing up and that's sort of what this film felt like to me it was it was just at every point it was just announcing we want you to feel like this just now do not 
you know, concern yourself with detail or the evidence of what's in front of you, um, this is the reaction that you are expected to have. Um, so that so that it was so yeah. But I think this scene in particular that that really underlined that point for me. Well, I didn't find it as clumsy as you. Um, I my response to the film was um, an emotional one, such that these 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 things that. Um, felt to you to be major stumbling blocks didn't really register, um, and I think that just just comes back down to the way dif- the way people watch films in different ways that we can only respond to them within our own emotional registers. This didn't work for you, but it did work for me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's that's perfectly fair. Yeah, I don't want, I don't want to suggest that you know, there's a right or wrong answer to this. Cause, yeah. No, and neither would I. Um, we, I mean, we clearly disagree on the film itself, but I don't think either of us have the wrong opinion. Mm. I don't think that's that's a hill worth dying mm. on. Unless it's, of course, the uh, uh, Val Kilmer version of The Saint. <clears throat> but um, yeah, this this is one reason why I, I like having the podcast like this, because I, I I really like this film. You really did not. And yet we can have a nice conversation about it and make jokes about each other. Can I, can I just check, by the way, what, what is, in, in like, you know, a word, what's your view on the Val Kilmer Saint film? Perfect. Oh, boy. Right, okay, right. Next time I'm here, right, oh, my God, we're going to have, I'm, I'm kidding, I've never seen it. I, I have no opinion about the, the Val Kilmer well, I did. Well, Saint. I did an episode on it, and you know who the guest was? Uh, I'm going to guess, was it by chance uh, my partner in crime? Yes, it was. Uh-huh. And what was his view on it? That he felt that it was not a good version of the saint, the character created by Leslie Charteris, mm-hmm. but as a film viewed in its own right, it's very good. That sounds and good. I and I and I think that's that's an entirely fair opinion because my knowledge of the of the Leslie Charteris character is quite limited, but I really really love that film as as a piece of work on its own. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. It's funnily enough, I don't wish to, to to be having a conversation, but Tilt while he's not here. But um, I've that that is. I think that's something that Tilt's explored in various podcasts that we've done. That I know that he has a particular issue with when an author has created a particular character. When you then get, as you do a lot these days, obviously you get a sort of reboot, you know, version of it, and you get like a new, you know, um, interpretation of that character. Um, sometimes I think he feels that they're purely trading on the name of that character and then otherwise just going off and making the film that they wanted to make regardless of whether it's got any kind of link with the the original um, character's characteristics, which is fair enough. Yes, I think that's 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 possibly a valid criticism of, the, of that film version of The Saint, but looked at as a piece of work in its own right... If it were thinking of it as this is a completely original character who happens to use this same alias, mm. it's it's an almost flawless film. Now I should point out that you're almost at the point of the film here that I liked. So keep going, oh, keep going because we're almost there. We're, we're nearly there. <laughs> um, Anne meets with uh, Lee in his flat again, and um, he says that. Um, Sometimes you know when you you know someone you might see get to see fifty percent of them, um, but um, later he says that he really only sees about ten percent of Anne because she's 
he he can tell that there's a lot that he's keeping from her as you know obviously the fact that she's both married and dying and he reads to her um from john berger's book to the wedding um i actually thought it was a poem for some reason and then realized it was a novel and it's a book about um overcoming fate and overcoming um the uh fear of impending death and that's something that she finds very upsetting so she's still trying to sort of avoid the uh, the inevitable that's that's approaching it's also um Anne's mother's birthday soon um and we find out that last year she went to uh, a bar hoping to meet someone but um it didn't work and she was very discouraged by it and doesn't see the point in doing anything like that again and uh, Anne goes back to the salon to see the Millie Vanilli character and she has her hair done and she has her nails done and um, as she's leaving the hairdresser says I'll see you soon and Anne says no but then turns back and says actually I really really like your braids so she's she's gone from being quite casual casually sort of offhand and unpleasant Mm. to actually making an effort to be nice to someone you know for no reason other than this is something that she feels she ought to be doing so she's even at this late stage in her life she's developing and and growing as a character quite dramatically as in quite a dramatic growth rather than dramatic growth oh god it's it's difficult it's difficult that those are the two same words oh he, he went there God, uh, that wasn't a, even a joke. I was trying to explain myself, and then realizing I was doing it incredibly badly. <laughs> Just don't mention sweet corn again. Okay, I promise I won't. <laughs> um, so she goes to visit her dad. I think it's written. There's a choir singing. God only knows. I think that's on the soundtrack. But she goes to she goes to visit her father, who it turns out is played by Alfred Muller. Yay! Now you say Muller now, I would not say Molina, but I don't know. I don't know if, it, if it's tomato tomato. I, I yes, I think I think it is Molina. Yes. But oh no, th- no, this is the bit that I liked because I'm sitting there. Here I am, okay, and you know, she's going into the prison, and and he sits there, and I'm like, that, 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 that's that's Alfred Molina. What the? What yeah. are you doing here? Now, you know what it's like when you see somebody that you recognise, but they're in circumstances that you don't expect to see them in. Uh, and that was how I was reacting to this, because I'm thinking, whoa, it's yourself. And I know, obviously, that Alfred Molina's had like a really successful career in the States for a long time, but I still sort of associate him with things like, for example, that the really good um, screen one drama about Hancock that he did mm, yeah. uh, and one of my favourite films of all um, Prick Up Your Ears in which he plays uh, Kenneth Halliwell and so it was just such a surprise uh, to see him here and I was like bloody hell and then I thought hang on a minute Alfred Molina and Blondie are supposed to be uh, a couple or at least you know ex-couple and I'm thinking damn it there should have been like a dream sequence that Anne has where she sort of pictures the perfect upbringing and we see the Hollywood power couple Alfred Molina and Debbie Harry together going off on all these wonderful Hollywood red carpet related adventures it would have been fabulous 
But alas, yeah, that might that might just possibly conflict with the tone of the rest of the film. Yep, yep, maybe so. But no, I, 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 I mean, oh, no, that I mean, I could, I could, I could look up pictures of um, festival screenings of this to see if you know they they went together <laughs> on, and walked and the couple up to the screening together, and maybe you can paste that in in the editing software you have in your mind. Well, I was just, I was just sort of thinking, you know, there's every possibility that they may have met in the green room of Saturday Superstore at some point, <laughs> and and now here they are on the big screen. Uh, in, in in front of did Blondie ever did Blondie ever perform on Saturday Superstar? Um, not that I'm aware, but I've, I'm I'm sort of thinking it's probably less likely that Alfred Molina would have. But then maybe he would have done that, you know, bit where he's taking the phone calls from the like the viewers and you know they're asking him about you know acting and things like that. Play- so yeah, yeah, they're asking him about playing Tony Hancock and Kenneth Halliwell. And yeah, yeah, exactly. That and that that bit he's in in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I would be fascinated if there had ever actually been a discussion about Joe Orton on Saturday Superstore. How would Mike Weed have handled that? We can only wonder. Well, I mean, it's like that time they had a feature on uh, Magpie about Oscar Wilde's trial. Well, there we go. What? How? Did, uh, how did Tommy Boyd? I mean, was he involved in this? How, how did he? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'm making it ah, up. It's a shame. Um, did you ever hear the story about Tommy Boyd supposedly having his head shoved in the toilet by Mick Robertson? Yes. Yeah. So the next scene in the film, um, uh, uh, as Anne uh, talks, that she she shows her father uh, pictures of their of her daughters and tells him about Don's job, and um, her father says that he spends his time making shoes. Um, that that's you know that's apparently the trade that mm. that. Uh, that they do in that particular prison, and he says that he will make a pair of shoes each for his two grandchildren. A scene which we were sadly robbed of seeing. Were you aware of this? Oh yes, yeah. Apparently, there are a number of scenes that were removed either at the draft stage, or mm. I think I think it was at the draft stage because they were just sort of slowing the pace of the film. But there was actually a shoemaking scene that we didn't really need it. I don't think we. Uh, her father, he feels genuinely regretful about having missed so much, about having missed so much of his daughter's life and meeting his grandchildren. Mm-hmm. We're never told why he's in prison, but we know he's been there for quite a long time and that he's not getting out any time soon. Did, did we actually... Did we, we didn't find out what it was he did, did we? No. I mean, the inference is it was probably pretty bad i think they said 10 years had he been in for 10 years and still had time to he'd go? been in for 10 he'd yeah. been in for 10 years and he's he's got some way to go right. at least armed robbery i'm gonna i'm gonna surmise okay uh i i i assume that maybe he got into a drunken fight and killed someone oh okay right. um Anne remembers touching his face when she was very young and um when uh, when she hangs up the the phone they use she she smiles and she presses a kiss onto the glass um when she gets home she's really starting to feel quite ill and the daughter's uh, sent off to school um and um so my notes start to get a little bit cryptic at this point um she sends a message for don oh no she rec- she records a special message for don uh on the tape recorder and she um she asks him to dream up a heaven for me and starts to sing god only knows but until her voice cracks 
and she follows that by recording a message for her mother asking her to try and enjoy life more to help Don and Penny and Patsy as much as she can and to tell them any stories that she thinks they might like and not to worry about whether or not they're suitable. Um, she goes for a drive with um, Lee and sees the glass harmonica again and Lee asks her to, to travel with him to to go to a, a desert in Chile and see glaciers in Argentina and things in Mexico and Alaska but she has to say no um, but she did always want to go to the restaurant where they had lunch and that I think it, all these sort of big plans of oh traveling the world and and seeing all these things says, no I always I always wanted to have lunch here you know, mm. just because uh, just because it's a little ambition doesn't mean it's not something that mm. doesn't matter. Um, Anne calls Dan to come and pick her up, but Lee says that he loves her and he doesn't want to see her leave. And they kiss goodbye, and he leaves and and he runs back and kisses her again, and she cries. Um, when she gets back home, she's feeling very weak and. Uh, the Anne neighbor and the neighbor cooks dinner as Anne Prime rests, and she starts to sort of see the other Anne become the the new woman of the house that the children like her that Dan likes her, and there's a line of dialogue and voiceover that she says that you pray this will be your life without you, and that you don't regret the life that you don't have, and she finally records a tape for Lee and we see him listen to it and at this point the film really reminds me of the ending of A Tale of Two Cities where as he walks up the steps to the guillotine Sidney Carton has a vision of all the main characters in the story and what will happen to them over the coming decades and how the woman he loved will have a child with the man whose life he saved and they will name their child after him and take him back to the square where Sydney is executed and will tell him the story of him and of his heroism. And the way this sort of this vision telescopes out in the future, we have the same thing with Anne of we see what happens next to these characters. And it's like Anne Anne is effectively narrating this from beyond. We see the doctor with his stockpile of tapes to give out. The waitress cutting a pie, cutting a slice of pineapple cheesecake. Um, she's looking. The she's looking at her share pictures as well, isn't she? I think. Yes. Um, the beautician's dancing, presumably to Millie Vanilli. Um, Anne's mother going on a date and apparently having a lovely time. And Don, the second Anne, and Penny and Patsy, going on a picnic to the beach. And in voiceover, we hear the tape that. Anne recorded for Lee and she tells him that he should paint his walls and buy some new furniture and that if he had fallen in love with only 10% of her if she'd seen all of her would he still have liked her and that life is much better than you think it is and that she loved dancing with him film ends um, I have a query Okay. Why do you think the writer named the neighbour Anne 
I don't have an I don't have any answer to this. I don't have an opinion about this, but I'm just intrigued as to to why why they would do that. I mean, because on one level it seems very um, what's the word um, convenient, you know, a place and yes. with Anne. But I, there's got to be more to it than that, surely? Because yeah, perhaps if you see them as as metaphorical twins, in the same way that the other Anne cared for conjoined twins, you could see the two Annes as being like two halves of the same person or being being separated elements. That the other Anne is able to... It's difficult to put this into words. It's, a lot of the film for me works on an instinctual level, on an emotional level that's, that's extremely difficult for me to articulate. Um, so why did you ask me such a difficult question? <laughs> um... That there is, there is a connection between them. I think that is bluntly illustrated by them having the same name. But it's there is there is something sort of more profound there, some sort of connection, some kind of emotional kinship that that allows the second Anne to join the family with the, with the first Anne's tacit blessing. Do you think that the text would be uh, enhanced? Again, I don't really have a strong opinion about this, but I'm thinking maybe it would. Do you think the text would be enhanced if instead of Laurie, um, Anne and Anne, let's say, are the workmates, and so we, we see much more of Anne too from the outset, because Anne too appears, like you say, you see a brief sort of glimpse of her early on, but the way that she sort of appeared almost out of nowhere and towards the last third of the film seemed a bit sort of clunky. And I'm thinking maybe if, if Anne too had always been there and, you know, maybe not called Anne as well, then perhaps that, that, would, have, that would have been a bit more sort of natural, the way that, that developed. Yes, I, I see your point. I think perhaps the character needed to be introduced earlier in the story. I... I think the problem with her having there as a, a continual presence is that they would know her better if she was their neighbour or, or if she was Anne's workmate. And it wouldn't... The the relationship that, that, that second Anne has with the family wouldn't develop in the same way. Um, it need, it, she needs to be a new person into this situation, I feel, for it, for it to work in the same way. It, yeah, you're right. It could have been improved, but... I think that I think there's a certain aspect of it needs to be retained, but it's yeah, it's it's not perfect. Well, it, it... go. I, I I don't I don't tend to do Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, strangely enough, I t- I'm, I'm much more an IMDb guy. But I mean, I know the star ratings are a bit sort of clunky and, and and a bit sort of reductive and what have you. But seven and a half out of ten like this film, so I'm I'm perfectly willing to sort of you know cede that point. And say, look, you know, if, if the people who like it like it, then great. Uh, and who am I to judge? Well, the, the the numbers I'm looking at are it's got a rating of um, something a little bit low, six point three two out of ten. Is that right, or has it changed the, since then? The page I'm looking at here. Let me just refresh it in case it's like a whole ton of reviews just come in just now. Uh, okay, no, the page I'm looking at here. Um, 
My Life Without Me 2003 listed 7.5 out of 10 based upon 24,078 review. Oh, that's the audience score. Oh, okay, right. All right, that all right. So I'm, I was looking at the critic score, right? That's that's okay, one. right. Um, yes, audiences liked it much more than critics, although critics did seem to think it was at least, you know, a, you know, an average of about six out of ten. Mm. So they weren't as hot on it as as I am. But um, do I get the impression that, were... that this this film has? developed maybe um a better reaction as time has gone on because i'm just looking at the uh the worldwide gross of just under 10 million dollars um opening weekend in the usa was a mere 40k and i'm getting the impression that this is possibly something which has developed an audience as the years have gone on rather than it being necessarily a box office well it was it was a low budget independent film uh, it had a budget of two and a half million, and it grossed over twelve million worldwide. So, in financial terms, it was a minor success. Um, and opening with forty thousand, if it had a a very sm- a very small opening, so to speak, um, that's not unreasonable for the kind of sort of festival prestige platform release it might have had. Um, I'm I'm not aware of it having any kind of uh, major following. I think it's perhaps just something that people have stumbled across and and have um, found some sort of connection with over the over the years um it's 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 a film whose appeal i think is is very personal and i think that's something that's come up through our discussion you'll either connect with this on an emotional level mm. or you won't mm-hmm. and i have and you didn't yeah and that's and as I say, that's fine. I I know you a bit, and I know that you're not you know cold and dead on the inside. <laughs> it's just that this this particular story, uh, uh, did, this particular uh, story was how much, didn't connect. Do you know fifty percent of me, or do you only know ten percent of me? And if you knew all of me, then what would you think then? <laughs> to quote, well, I I, I know I know ten percent of you, and I've listened to your podcasts, and I think there's probably you know one or two more in there. <laughs> so I mean, you're you're a good guy, Gary. Well, I mean, don't 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 listen to the people who say that you're not. <laughs> I I I try, I try not to, but my goodness, there's so many of them. And eventually, you sort of think, well, there's so many those, of them. Those those people aren't your friends, well, you know. Like you said, this this here, this is a safe place where you can talk honestly and, and emotionally about this, your this feelings. Is a, this is a, and that's fine. Yeah, this is a support group. Yeah. Yeah. I don't right, okay, I'm just I'm just gonna blot it out. Why You'll only find friendship here. Why doesn't Tilt like early doors? I don't know, never seen oh, it. Oh honestly, but do you know what it's like? I'm saying that I didn't mean to do this, right? But I was saying that do you know what it's like when you really, really would like something and you put it in front of somebody else and they don't like it? And I'm thinking, well yeah, of course you do, because that's what you've just done with this film. But no I Yeah, it's it's really disappointing when that happens. It's happened to me a lot of times on a lot of other things. Oh, okay. Well I'm glad I'm not I'm glad I'm not the only one. But that well, that's good to hear. But no, honestly, best sitcom of of of, of that era. And I put it in front of him and nothing. Oh, man. So, yeah, I'm going to use this forum now to say everything that I want to say about Tilt whilst he's not here uh, to to put up any kind of hapless counter-argument. Don't be mean about Tilt. He's a nice man. No, I'm only saying this because I want to find out if he actually listens to the, the podcast all the way through. Um, oh, I oh I doubt it. Well, yeah. 
I mean, he'll have seen your name in the right up <laughs> skip. Yeah. Um, well, speaking for myself, I really like My Life Without Me. I think it's a really nicely written character story. I, I, I've spoken in the past comparing films to um, artworks, like describing films in terms of being like a, uh, a pencil sketch or an oil painting, and this film feels like it's a watercolour. It's something that feels very personal and very transient. Um, and I think this this is a film that you will either connect with on a personal emotional level or you won't. And if you don't, then you're going to find something else that you do. Like, you've done that with Early Doors. I have no idea. I, it's something to do with a pub, I don't know. But you've, you've, you have found your connection with that. Tilt didn't. I haven't, because I've never tried. And I think if you have found something that's really grabbed you on that level, then I I might not do that, and I might have a reason why I haven't, but that is yours. That's, that's, that, that exists for you, and that's very strong for you. And I feel about that. I feel about this film the way you feel about that. Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. I think that's a very, I think it's a very solid resolution. Shall we take a vote? Mm-hmm. All those in favour? Well, it's one versus one. <laughs> well, no, I thought we were agreeing. So it's it's two versus none. We're we're agreeing that this that people who like this sort of film will like it. Yes. It's. Do you feel that watching it was worth your time? For the, ex- for the experience and for seeing something different outside. Okay, this is, this is going to sound sort of um, a bit sort of clawing and the kind of thing that I usually criticise, but I'm going to say, yes, it was, in as much as being overall part of this project and being on the show, uh, because I've enjoyed oh. talking with you today about it. And, and I appreciate the invitation to be on the show. So from that point of view, yes. It's not a film that I would have um, sought out myself. It's a kind of, without in any way sort of trying to, you know, um, conform to stereotypical sort of norms or anything like that. It's the kind of thing that if I'd been looking at this in, in all circumstances, it's because somebody, you know, sitting on the couch alongside me had wanted to see it. So, you know, put it like that. But um, yeah, and, and as much as yeah, it was it was a a nice you know talking point, and I've enjoyed you know being here today. But yes, yes, it was. This too has been part of your emotional growth, and it was also I was watching it on a day when there wasn't any snooker on because you know the the qualifiers for the UK Championship had just ended, and the main event didn't start till the day after. So from that point of view, it was perfect. So yeah. Well, I'm glad you found this to be an appropriate alternative. <laughs> I did actually watch one other film the same day, which is very unusual for me because I, most days I don't watch any films, so to watch two in one day is quite something. And what was it? The other film was something that had been on my watch list for a long, long time. Finally got round to it, and that was the uh, Michael Caine um, heist thriller King of Thieves about the Hatton Garden uh, uh, heist. And uh, very enjoyable it was too, and it's got a fantastic cast. Paul Whitehouse... Tom Courtney, uh, Ray Winston, and Jim Broadbent. 
and yeah, and also Michael Gambon playing it exactly like Private Godfrey. And uh, yeah, very enjoyable that was. And that's what we're doing on the show next week, folks. <laughs> you, I was going to make that joke. No, I'm going to um, I'm going to find something else for you to watch. Okay, right. And something that something that you might engage with instead. Yeah, yeah. Have you got? Have, we'll have you? No, I no, I did. Now I was going to ask you about this because I know when Tilt did Ghostbusters, for example. I think you put some like some titles in front of them and what have you, and said, right, okay, which of these you know that you've never seen. All I'm going to do, I'm just going to plant this seed right now. Um, I've never seen The Godfather. It's not that great. <gasps> oh man, spoiler! Thanks to Gary for making time for this recording. His podcasts, The Sitcom Club and Jaffa Cakes for Proust, co-hosted with previous guest Tilda Reiser, are both part of the Podnose Network and are highly recommended. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with almost 90 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, say what you're thinking. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.